Sweet. Uh, we've had 50 shows of the Twin Geek Cast, and this week we brought our uh, friend, editor, Jesse, on with us. Hey, guys. What's going on? Welcome. Hey, Jesse. We're so glad to have you here this week uh, to talk. It's kind of a roundabout podcast here. Our very first podcast was around this time. I believe it was October 21st last year. And we did uh, the new Halloween at that point, which is the the David Gordon Green one. So it's kind of roundabout coming around here to talk about the original one. And we'd love to have you on to talk about it, especially with all the work you did on Halloween last year. Oh, yeah, it was a uh, it took time. I'll say that I've been been happy to host it at the site, though. There's only like 12 films to cover. So I imagine it did take considerable time. And our podcast is officially a year old. We hey, way to go. Um, so I was going back through the old ones looking for timestamps, man. We sounded rough in those uh, early days. Yeah, probably just you'd just like, like headphones into a phone or something like that, you know. <laughs> yeah, plenty of technical difficulties that mirror where we are today. Everything's come full circle. Yeah, we've, we've made quite a few advancements. We've changed our, our mic setups a couple times here throughout, and we, we and Calvin have gotten better here just at talking in general, uh, and our format has been cleaned up considerably. It took only 50 episodes to get here, so now we're only sort of mediocre. Yeah, we're semi-listenable. <laughs> yeah, you guys are all right. I can put you on the car sometimes. Sure. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Please flatter us. We could use it. And we need to. I guess we should just disclose that Jesse's just Graham's character. He plays with a, a Kentucky thick Kentucky accent. I'm Graham, but shorter, and in other ways better. <laughs> it explains him stealing all your stuff all the time. He stole my haircut. He stole my shirt. He even stole my front door. And I don't know how he did this, but it is what it is. I mean, that's why we're called the Twin Geeks, because we adopt and assimilate from each other. Assimilation cast. Yes. On this week's show, it's the night Jesse came home. We'll discuss the Star Wars trailer, Watchmen, Parasite, and what do we have for our feature presentation, David? For our feature this week, we're looking at the 1978 horror classic from John Carpenter, Halloween, which practically invented the slasher genre and is perfect for this autumnal season. Guys, I watched the 2007 version. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh, wow. Well, I guess we'll have to do our best Rob Zombie takes here. Right. Um, so, what do you think of Rob Zombie? <laughs> um, he was in that band White Zombie. Yeah. Uh, based on the movie, he was an adaptation of the movie White Zombie. Mm-hmm. I love Bella Lugosi. That's what we're talking about now, right? <laughs> yes. It, he was in the band as well, I believe. So basically, uh. Rob Zombie has made an entire career out of ripping off older horror movies. That <laughs> uh, sounds it sounds about right. I remember my fiance showing me I I believe it was House of a Thousand Corpses when we were still in high school together. Oh, and I couldn't ha- handle scariest movies at that point and I was pretty revolted by it. 
Oh yeah, I I could see it. I mean, he doesn't. His movies don't feel good. You shouldn't like them. I don't think you could respect him. I watched it uh, last month just to prepare for his uh, final chapter in the Firefly family saga, and uh, it is still terrible. It is. Yeah. You <laughs> don't want to watch that movie. Did you get around to his new one, by the way? Yes. Was that yes. 31? 31, I think it was called? No, uh, um, Three from Hell. Yeah, that's it. Three from Hell. That's right. 31 was the one before that. Yeah, that's the one Calvin vouchers for. <laughs> yeah, that one's kind of like his Halloween 3 in some sense, where he makes a... Uh, and it seems like it would be an anthologized movie that would come out every year based on the holiday tradition. Not attached to any kind of killer, but still in the Halloween spirit. Oh, so that's where the name comes from because yeah. thirty. That Halloween 30. is on the thirty first. Yeah, you got it. Ah, uh, that that makes sense. How late am I to that? Was that uh, two two year old movie or something? Thirty one days. Thirty one days old. Um, uh, I guess a new in horror we have wounds on Netflix, which is the Babak and Vari uh, film he did under the shadow, which I'm always going to bat for. Yeah, it that movie's great. Oh yeah, under the shadow it has such a great impression of uh, war in Iran. It's just this mother and child just getting bombed in their house and, you know, the spirits that evokes. Uh, it's it's so cool. Yeah, great social commentary on that, too. You seen that, David? Uh, I have not, because I don't watch movies, as you know. <laughs> this one's about uh, Army Hammer. He plays a bartender in New Orleans, and... Uh, he gets a phone left at his bar, and it kind of contaminates his person. And it's more social commentary, what are we doing with phones? But uh, it's just a lot of him talking into his phone. And you all know I'm not into that kind of shit. No, absolutely not. Never, ever talking to your phone. No, I'm not into her. I'm not into phone setups for podcasts. I've had mm-hmm. it. Uh, Cal- Calvin is very much an old man yelling at a cloud. <laughs> old man yelling at a phone. Um <laughs> uh, it's okay I, I'm very curious why Zazie Beats keeps getting roles where she's just kind of there uh, she she just keeps getting roles where she's just she's on screen but she's not really doing anything uh, I don't know why she keeps getting cast that way because she's so capable yeah she's a lover in Atlanta yeah um, great in Atlanta uh, not, not so much here doesn't have much to do uh, she goes in with the boyfriend there gets to be a bar fight then uh Army Hammer picks up the phone and it corrupts his soul. Uh, there's not a lot to it. I was I was super disappointed with this. Yeah, that's that sounds like it lays it on a bit thick. I was gonna say it seems just like uh, even uh, with how uh, ubiquitous phones are in our modern day, we haven't quite figured out the best way to incorporate them into our films yet and kind of reflect that uh, culture, you know, in our movies. I just finished the Brooklyn Horror Fest, so I saw about three or four shorts where it's just people talking on the phone, right? And uh, they didn't, you know, amateur filmmakers might not know this isn't the right way to build suspense, but for someone like Anvari who did it so perfectly last time, I'm just really surprised. Yeah, um, I'm just not, I'm not sure what the, the way to do it is yet. I haven't seen a proper way to incorporate it. I think, I think the best example still I saw was 8th grade, but even then that was uh, still pretty traditional. Yeah. storytelling goes i think eighth grade does it right because it does it's a lot of like the emotions of what using the technology is about and stuff and uh the way that it shows the experience with the you know like the sail away song while she's laying on her right. bed avoiding her dad it, it means something 
Well, it's only um, one perspective still. It's still a very youthful perspective there. We haven't seen it in a kind of everyday normal adult perspective yet, which I think is a kind of interesting thing because phones do present a plot problem for lots of films. Like, you, you know, you think do. about all the situations, even the one we're going to be talking about this week here, you know, like if if cell phones were more of an accessible thing, it would render the plot pointless in many instances. Oh, so it's yeah. hard to it's it's hard to write around that obstacle now. Oh, well, like, a, it's a point to mention because, you know, we talked about the new Halloween and uh, they had a pretty awkward scene where they took out the phone, if you remember. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, it, it has to be done because, you know, people are going to sit there and say, why didn't they call the police? Why didn't they do this? I have to acknowledge that, that weirdness that, that's inherent now. Yeah. And uh, also on Netflix this week, we have The Laundromat. <laughs> we have a new uh, Steven Soderbergh movie that nobody's seen, which is great. I think it was interesting because I thought that it was going to get a lot more uh, attention once the court, the court ruling had decided that it was allowed to be distributed because one of the people involved with it was trying to sue to prevent it from being released, which is just like a Streisand effect where you, you draw more attention in. You know, but it's, got it's nothing. Prob- it, I mean, close to nothing anyway. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's weird because it has Gary Oldman, Antonio Banderas, and uh, Meryl Streep in it as main characters. You, I mean, those people working with Soderbergh, it should be a big revelation coming up on award season. But uh, it's really clean. It, it's a lot like the Big Short. It's shot with the new, uh, the new higher res cameras from Apple, the 8K. So that's interesting. That uh, it's inspiring seeing someone do that, but it doesn't mean anything. It's a movie. Is that just what Soderbergh is doing now? Is he exclusively shooting on iPhones? Yeah, his I think last it's been like three, his last three movies have been that way. Wow, really? Insane high flying bird. This. I, I'm just not. Sh- can someone explain to me what the advantage of this is? Like, is there something that the phone has that that gives a certain uniqueness to the films, or is it just like a novelty thing? Like, I can do it because I can. Yeah, I think it's just the lo-fi, uh, let's go back to a simpler way of making films. Let's let's show that anyone can make a movie with what's in their pocket. But three times? I mean, that's... <laughs> I mean not, not only that, but it's like it's not just what's in, his, in your pocket, because Soderbergh is still using different lenses and other equipment oh, yeah. to, to do movies. Like, like, he's not just out, like, holding the phone in between his fingers there and, and shooting it, so it seems like... I don't know. Maybe Apple's paying him to make these. That's my only other thought here is that this is just a great endorsement for iPhones. <laughs> I thought High Flying Bird was. I don't think this one is so good. Um... Well, it's interesting because, like you said, all the prestige talent. But uh, I think in inversely to what you said there, the, all those names may not be the same drawing power they once were. You know, as much as we all love Meryl Streep, I don't think people are going to the theaters or to the netflix to see her specifically as much as they were 10 20 years ago or whatever i think especially when you reduce it to a small screen like the iphone and uh, maybe you want to see those people in the theater and not at home is it playing in the theaters uh i don't not near me it isn't yeah because it's so hard for these netflix releases to get to theaters now it's you know so so rare and just in general we're coming finding that to be such a problem that all of the really interesting and uh, more artistic films are all being relegated to streaming or just the barest of like art uh, art theaters uh, you know because everything else being sucked up by blockbusters uh, also on streaming this week we have a well on TV as well we have Watchmen either are you into Watchmen 
I haven't yet. I, I love the original graphic novel and pretty much detest anything else that's came with the Watchmen name. <laughs> so I always felt that, what's his name, Rorschach, is that right? Yeah, yeah, Rorschach. Okay. He was always like the popular character that I felt people could relate to or had, he was the one that was always seeking truth. In well, the he was like the he's like the Batman equivalent, effectively. So in this one, he's the representation for the alt right and white supremacists. <laughs> I heard that. Um, they they all wear the Rorschach hood, and I I just wondered if that was at all present in the comics. Um, he sort of represents like kind of like an anarchist approach, but no, nah, I'm gonna no, not so much. Yeah, not not, not specifically not white supremacy. I'm imagining. I'm guessing it's, that he always represented something like a like human, like what what humans were capable of, right? Like the darkness oh, oh. they had. Well, kind of like a, a a dark side of vigilantism, from my understanding. Yeah, and like it was a like a downward tr- slope for him. Like he he wasn't always that way. It just no. the longer he goes on, the more uh, just kind of out there he gets. And I really like the opening of The Watchmen. It's, like, centered around tragic black history, which you wouldn't think from Damon Lindelof, because, you know, that's not a black name, not a black creator. Um, and you'd you'd be surprised how much it goes into a lot of black trauma through history. Uh, it's nice to see HBO uh, shooting back up with uh, Succession and this, and uh, um, they've had a few hits this year after Game of Thrones went away. I heard Succession was great. Succession? Yeah. I haven't. Just like with movies, I don't watch TV either. I'm just oh, no. here. <laughs> what What do you do? Yeah, Succession was my so far my favorite show of the year. Um, that and uh, what's their other one? Uh, Chernobyl was pretty fantastic. Chernobyl was fantastic. Yes. What do you think of that? Did you feel like that went into like the horror depths the way I did, like in the first episode, especially? That first episode's probably the best horror release of the year. I think it might be. I was completely just on the edge of my seat and watching them in that in that control room, and I was sweating bullets. It was just constant dread, that just nonstop. And uh, it's like um, the reactor that we uh, that kept on getting referred to was kind of like the the monster from horror movies, you know? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think that and Watchmen are really strong releases for the year, and I was really impressed. Uh, it also does a thing where I feel like it's turning um, uh, white nationalism on its head to where uh, a lot of black people are in power, but there's still a lot of white nationalism around them. Um, it feels like a shift in who's in control. You mean like infiltrations? Uh, yeah, like there's, there's a scene in the beginning where the black officer comes into the car. It seems like a... You know, uh, the opposite of what you usually see, like a white man approaching a black man in a car. But, you know, now the white man's all nervous and reaching into his glove box. It doesn't go very well for the black guy, but uh, you feel that that shift in who's really in control and that these white people have just been like kind of snuffed out to like a small resistance group at this point. Mm, that, that sounds a little concerning if it's not framed correctly, like it's it's flipping the narrative there and playing the white characters as a victim at least the way you described it just now i don't think victim at all because he he is the aggressor in the situation yeah he's okay it just sounds like especially when you say that like the roles are switched then then that's what made me think here so 
But I think I it's assume... very well handled, and because it opens with such a black tragedy, that I think it's very considerate of where it's coming from. There, I'm sure. I, I, I'm, I'm sure. I'm just misinterpreting it based sure. on what you've said here, because I've heard such great things about the first episode here so far, and I don't imagine it. But it's just that that the tipped off a little red flag in my head there. I'm like, ah, oh, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> I mean, it's very uncomfortable. It also has uh, Oklahoma is very present. The the musical and some of the songs in it. The first episode's named after a. a you know, uh, it's summer and we're running out of ice. Part of the Oklahoma song. Is the uh, white dude in the opening scene? Is he one of the uh, Warshack people? Um, yeah, yeah, he does end up being one. Okay. Uh, so other than that, I, there was Looking for Alaska, which is a John Green book that I really like. Came out on Hulu this last week. Uh, it has Charlie Plummer, who I love from Lead on Pete. Um, a very good adaptation. Uh, I think everyone should read the young adult novel. I don't know what the show will take off. Hmm. I'm just going to go ahead and say here now, not only do I not watch TV or movies, <laughs> I also don't read books. What, David, so, what do you do? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't do anything. I just sit here in this chair and wait for you to come next week and talk okay. to me again. <laughs> to talk about movie, TVs, and books. <laughs> exactly. I really love the book. Um, I like the adaptation all right. I, I like Charlie Plummer. I, I was such a big fan of him on Lead on Pete, and I really wanted him to be like a generational actor. I have the review done, but uh, we're pretty busy on the site, so maybe a minute till we get that out. It is. It's a busy month between all of our uh, October-related content and uh, both festivals we have going on concurrently, uh, which we do have a, a couple things uh, from this this week, uh, Tyler, he's hanging out in Chicago, going yeah. to Chicago Film Festival, and he has reviews up right now for Jojo Rabbit, which just released this week, as well as he's got um, Ford uh, v Ferrari coming out. A yeah, review for um, that. Both positive. I think uh, he is very very high on waves, um, extremely high. And then mm-hmm. Jojo, he I think it went better than ex- expected for him, but uh, Ford versus Ferrari felt was just a typical biopic. Yeah, so be sure to check all those out on the site if you're interested in any of those upcoming releases, as well as uh, another review we have from Graham on The Lighthouse, which is a new release this week, uh, which we will talk more about in depth next week because me and Calvin still haven't have yet to see it because it's not coming out until uh, to, like tomorrow. I'm going to see it tomorrow myself. Lucky you. <laughs> you're seeing it soon too, Jesse, aren't you? Yeah, Friday. I got to wait an extra day. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm on Friday for it. It's just it's uh, a little inconvenient that it released just an extra. I don't know how Graham got it so much earlier than us, <laughs> lucky bastard. <laughs> and that that DC market just an extension New York, I guess. Uh, but uh, Jesse and I have seen Parasite, so I want to get your hot takes on Parasite. Parasite, oh Parasite's wonderful. Um, and I think it was a great bounce back after the reception that Octa got. Yeah. Um, I really love seeing how the family interacted with the house and how it frames different uh, different classes of uh, social status together. Um, it, it gives you a lot of ideas about uh, some stuff that just gets left on the table in these kind of movies. Yeah, some that I've been pondering, and it's hard to kind of talk about it without spoiling it. Sorry, right. I'll do my best. Uh, the the title it's itself. Okay, I'll just plug my ears yeah, right now. Plug your ears. And uh, the title itself, you know, Parasite, um, going in you think it's obvious who the parasites are, but it, it's not right. just quite that. It's, it's, it's on like every main character in the movie could fall into that role. They just, they all serve a purpose for each other. 
yeah, I think they're all parasitic in their own way is kind of what the movie gets to. It's like a, I think of it sort of like the thing, like who is the thing, kind of everyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had the same takeaway after watching it that I did with the thing where I thought um, maybe I could rewatch it again and find someone else is different. I, I've even had ideas that The Rock is the parasite. <laughs> the Rock? Yeah, The Rock that gives him hope and that he carries around with him and Every time there's a scene with the rock, something changes in their social status. Oh shit! You're right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and there's this there's this Gatsby-ish, Gatsby-ish thing uh, where I, I was waiting for that to come up. I was wondering if Calvin was going to ask Jesse about that because that's all all you seem to have. like. It's a, a a requirement when you talk about the film is to bring up Gatsby now. It's just the way that social classes are framed with like this, you know, this huge mansion next to like the underlying area where, you know, like Nick would be staying. But um, there's a whole thing with the rain and the thing with the rock happens. And I was like, man, that might be the fucking parasite. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. And um, I actually haven't seen or read any Gatsby in my life. That's fine. (laughs) I'm but, just obnoxious uh, bringing it up every time Parasite comes up. I just expect it now. I, I do want to go on record and say this is actually a movie I would have seen had it come to my area at all. But alas, it did not. Not a single air, a por- uh, theater in the Portland area, as far as I could find, was playing it. So I'm sad about that. But hopefully I'll get to see it before we do our end of the year review. Because I'm sure, based on everyone's testimony, that it's going to be super high up there. Yeah, I'm- yeah how's it ranking for you, Jesse? Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm wanting to see it again. Right now, it's uh, I haven't seen much from this year, but it, I can easily see it taking number one. Yeah, I could too. I want to get a rewatch in theater because uh, I had to be a dirty pirate the first time. Oh whoa! <laughs> oh, whoa! Uh, I just just want to say that none of us here condone Calvin's actions in this regard. We are perfectly legally abiding uh, reviewers here. I mean, oh, you are, but. Uh... I wanted to get in on that parasite action. I thought it was funny that uh, I I feel like I'm the parasite because I I was the one that went in and got it early. Well, well, Jesse, I'm glad you did not stoop to this low level that Calvin has. Though I am shocked that Kentucky got a screening of Parasite when here this you know bastion of culture in Oregon did not. Well, everything happens in Kentucky, you know. Kentucky's where it's at. <laughs> that that theater in Lexington, yes. <laughs> Right. That's that's what I hear. You know, I only hear good things about Kentucky as of recently. Uh, it's good people you got running the place over there. Only good things in the news right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We got we have horses and uh, bourbon. Horses. That that's what. Right <laughs> but um, sounds about right. I kind of anticipated this this whole um, Kentucky shit talking and. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you anticipate? We held off here for like almost 25 minutes. I think it was about time we got in a jab or two, right? These damn Northwesterners and their... (laughs) Us coastal elites sitting pretty over here at our our mansions by the sea. You guys and your your fucking flannel and your Doc Martens. This delicious minimum wage is is wonderful. A living minimum wage. I love that. I bet you use it to buy cream cheese to put on your hot dogs. (laughs) (laughs) It's the only way to have them. You've got to try the Seattle dog. No way. No way. You might as well put mayonnaise on peanut butter. That's no. You're talking about putting ice cream on your toast. Come on. Hold on. You don't put mayonnaise on your peanut butter? Is that not something everyone does? Oh, my God. 
So you don't watch movies, you don't read books, you don't watch television, but you put mayonnaise on your peanut butter. <laughs> uh, I mean, how else do you live your life? That's just it's the way to be, man. And shit on Mulholland Drive. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I see. We're we're getting into this now. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll save that. I'm, I'm still tabling that for right. another day. I will save you. Right. Right. All right, gloves down for now. Gloves. <laughs> yeah, we um, we get to so, agree today. Yeah. What else we have is uh, we're looking at box office, but there's a new box office mojo site that launched today. Yeah, we're, we're actually protesting discussion of the box office because of the horrendous changes made here. Uh, not at all because we didn't watch any of the new films that released this week. It's solely because of these box office mojo changes. It's true. Changes. I mean, we watched everything from Maleficent Man. Wait, what's it called? Maleficent Mistress of Evil? Maleficent I don't, Man. I don't, we watched that. Maleficent. I don't know about you, but I saw everything in the box office this week. But I'm refusing to talk about it because of this change. I was a big fan of Jaxi, the horror remake. Wait, what is it? Uh, Oh, we're Jack not going C. to talk about it because the box office is screwed up. But. Yeah, but it's called Jexy, I guess. It's it's like the Walking Phoenix movie, Her, where where someone falls in love with their cell phones, but it's also bad, like that movie. Oh, is that the one we it, talked about earlier? It's got Scarlett Johansson, though, so you have to love it. Mm, yeah, we oh, mentioned it earlier, and Calvin's disdain for it. It's just because he can't see Scarlett Johansson in it. That's really why he, he doesn't like her. I mean, that's a huge problem. Yeah, you need to get over your I bet if you close your eyes and picture, just po- just tape a poster of Scarlett Johansson over the TV screen, and I bet the movie will like shoot up an improvement for you. I bet I'd rather watch that poster. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. We we also have uh, Zombieland Double Tap, which we're also not going to talk about out of protest. No, we're uh, not going to see it or talk about it. I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah. What What's the reason? I don't know. I. For for not seeing it or the protest or, uh, well well, well my reason is because I don't watch movies as I've said like four times. Uh, I wasn't talking uh, to you, David. I don't know about Calvin, Calvin though. <laughs> okay, f- fine, fine. There's a uh, there's other <laughs> movies out right now. <laughs> Zombie Lens wouldn't you know it wouldn't be on the top of my list in a in a very clear season. So uh, in a very packed one, I'm just not you know it's I'm not rushing. We all have only... horror lists. To watch yeah you know it's only a 10 year old sequel you know uh, who's why? really interested in that it's seriously it's like it, it bombed pretty bad didn't it 26 million uh let's see it's it's a 26 million for its first week here i don't know let me let's see what the budget was just pull up my my imdb app as calvin likes to say since they're combined it would be nice if it was just on here now It'd be nice since that's uh, this is their fault. It's IMDb's fault for making box office mojo look so hideous. I even saw you can go peek on Twitter. I saw that uh, Edgar Wright's even on our side here, oh, thinking good. it's lame. Uh, Validation. Forty-two million. So it's not actually that bad. But it's probably not going. It'll probably make that back at least, and then yeah. probably plummet from there. I was reminded in the discourse of this. Do you guys remember when they made a TV show for Zombieland? For Amazon Prime, right? Wasn't that it? What? Wasn't it an Amazon show? Yeah. Uh, I think it might have been. I don't exactly remember. Like, I, I, I don't, I don't know about that. I, I forgot. I it, was a, it wasn't a show. It was a pilot. That's what it was. It was a pilot. Okay. Yeah. That totally didn't work out, and it was, it was bombed and awful. But, yeah. 
totally forgot. I don't like Zombieland that much. Uh, I don't need more of it. No. It's... I mean, I I liked the original when I saw it, but that was 10 years ago. You can't hold me accountable for that. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those couple of instances where I liked Woody Harrelson. You know what I did like, though? I liked uh, Maleficent. That that movie's hot. That, that, a lot of leather but, but, and... But, the first one, because we're not supposed to talk about the second one out of protest. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't talk about the second one. I wouldn't even dare to. Uh, the first one's pretty hot, though. I think Angela Jolie with her, like... I like that her face, like, smushed into a mask. That's pretty cute. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, it's a good movie. I, I don't kink shame, so... I don't... <laughs> I, don't I, I mean, I guess of all the... Uh, does this one qualify as a Disney live-action remake? Yeah. Because it's... Yeah. I don't know. I think it's too transformative for what we understand them to be. Like, it seems like it's its own thing. I think this is what they should be, at least. I, I think this is what they should aspire to be, is, like, that first movie. I... Because you watch it, and some of the same things happen that are in the story. Like, she's coming up to the crib, and she curses the princess. Like, oh, you know, before her 16th birthday, she runs in and pokes her hand doing yarn. Uh, I don't know how people make yarn. Do they spin yarn? Yeah, you, you it's, a, it's a spinning thing. That's a yarn. Uh, no, it's not, it's not even a yarn. It's a something somehow else. You, somehow you poke your hand on a spindle or something, and, and something happens, and then she There's goes a to word- sleep. There's a word for it, but I'm too masculine to know what those things are. Exactly. Um, this movie's <laughs> not very masculine. What? Like turning butter or something like that? It could be. You know that thing in Sleeping Beauty? It's the it's the magical thread wheel thing, and she pokes her finger on it, and she falls asleep. You know Sleeping Beauty, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that movie, yeah. Sleeping Beauty. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. What's it? Uh, yeah, we're trying to think of the name of the thing that she pokes her finger on. Why can't it just be like a cursed apple, like Snow White was? That shit's right. easy to remember. It's a it's a damn apple. This has to be some archaic, you know, threading device that we can't even fathom nowadays because we're all too busy with our phone technology, which can all thread everything we need for us. So, so it's like I a guess... sewing machine, is what you're saying? Yeah. It, yeah, yeah, but like less mechanical and more spinny, and there's a pokey thing on the edge, kind of like a. Like a spindle. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but that's a word. Spindle? I'm like half exaggerating my examples and half actually clueless here, so. Yeah. So, uh, I've never seen Sleeping Beauty, so I don't have a clue what you're talking about. Okay, so oh. yeah, she she curses this girl that if she doesn't find love or something, she'll go to sleep for a while. Uh, and then she turns sleeps. into a dragon. Yeah, yeah, she turns into a dragon, which is pretty dope. Yeah, I've seen that uh, shot. Sure it's awesome. Yeah. A lot of leather stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's, so, so we've said the words a couple times. I found it because I need to look it up. It is the spindle of a spinning wheel. I thought it was something fancier called than that, but I guess that's just what it is. No, uh, that makes sense. Um, I don't know. I don't want to see this. I hear a lot of Trump comparisons a lot that it's about the wall or something. I don't, I don't want to see that sequel. I, I was fine with the first movie. The new one? Yeah. So have they done any other of these like um, live action movies based off of just Disney characters that aren't straight remakes? Have they? Is this a thing besides Maleficent? Uh, just this one in Milan looks a lot different. Uh, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to tell. I don't remember how different if Pete's Dragon was as well. Though if it was different, I bet nobody could tell because nobody remembers the original Pete's <laughs> exactly. Dragon. Exactly. Nobody even remembers the new Pete's Dragon. So there was a Snow White thing. Um. I wonder if it's just like the Sanctisect ones from the 90s, like Aladdin and uh, 
and Lion King that will be exact because and Beauty and the Beast because those are so recent because a uh, Dumbo is also like a extra hour hour and a half of movie than the That's original. True, but they do largely preserve all of the not racist stuff from Dumbo, yeah. right? Sure. Yeah, it's all in there. Wait, they did, they did Dumbo? Uh, and I bl- yeah, yeah. Dumbo came Tim Burton. Tim, Tim Burton did it. Movie. Tim Burton, like the director. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he made some movies. I thought I didn't Kentucky? know about movies. He made he made some good movies like twenty years ago. That guy. Tw- twenty years approximately, I think that uh, that guy. He he used to do you know creative things, and now he just turns out bullshit for Disney. You know, twenty years might be right there. I think it's been twenty years since his Pretty decline sure. started. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's about post Alice you, in Wonderland. I think he's hopeless. Though. I mean, that's that's hopeless territory. But he was already getting bad before then. It's uh like like I think the tipping point everyone kind of agrees was like Mars Attacks, where Mars Attacks was like, oh, there's still pretty good Burton things in here, but it's it's kind of incoherent and not always great. What's going on there, Timmy? Uh, <laughs> and then from there, it's just kind of downhill with with very few things of interest in between, like. I like Sweeney Todd, and uh, I hear good things about. He got like Sleepy Hollow just after that, and Sleepy Hollow is kind of cool. It's very Halloween appropriate, very gothicy, mm-hmm. but like it's it's kind of boring for most of the time. Otherwise, uh, Big Fish. I feel like there's there's Big Fish. That one's a good one. Oh yeah, Big Fish. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. People really love Big Fish. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but yeah, that one's in between. Again, it's just weird point, but like for the last ten years, it just has all been kind of bad. Like varying degrees of bad. Yeah, they they all just kind of look the same to me. I n- I never watch them. Which yeah, he has uh, yeah. he has an aesthetic. You're right. It's it was a different aesthetic than what his aesthetic aesthetic used to be, yeah. which we all miss. I think everyone desperately misses '80s Tim Burton. Well, go to hot topic. Um, <laughs> so for our feature, our main reason for bringing Jesse in, of course, we want to discuss Halloween. Yeah. The original, the movie, not the holiday, and not the the first of three movies that are all named Halloween. Correct. This is a, this is. So a, I guess uh, if you could give us your background with the movie. Oh, my background. Um, Halloween is probably my favorite movie, and just because it's what propelled me to uh, start thinking about movies as something other than just mindless entertainment. It. My mom um, mentioned it to me when I was young, and um, I remember going to the video store and seeing a uh, box art for the sequels and just kind of being uh, like fascinated by it. And it came on uh, like TBS one day and made it like 30 minutes, had to turn it off. Scared the shit out of me. <laughs> and it took me three years from that point to actually finish the movie after multiple attempts. Um, the only reason why I ever was able to finish it is because I saw its sequel, and it opens with the ending of the original, so I kind of knew how it ended at that point. Or else, hell, I might still so not have, that helped you. Might still not have seen Halloween. That helped you feel better about it. Say it again? I was saying that, that seeing knowing the ending of it, that helped you kind of view the film then, then go back and be like, oh, as long as I know this, then maybe, you know, I know he doesn't you know, get away with it or whatever, uh, you know, I could feel better about watching the rest. Yeah, like I knew who lived and who died at that point, essentially. Right. So. R- right. So, so it took some of the edge off then, all the tension, and you could watch it and feel a little 
little better knowing that when Lori's getting attacked in the closet, you're like, she'll make it out of this. Exactly, exactly. And How was that next experience for you? Well, um, after that point, um, I, I remember I used to watch it repeatedly. Like, after I could finally get through it. And uh, yeah. it's funny, I just thought of this. I haven't thought about it in a long time. Um, in that um, that period where I was just putting it on every night, I remember specifically one night I turned it on, get you know part way through that that opening with the uh, where the score is playing and you, you see the pumpkin. Then all of a sudden I hear this big uh, this yell from downstairs. It was my dad actually who was deeply concerned that I was watching Halloween for like two months straight. <laughs> <laughs> and he's son, son, you don't need to watch that every night. <laughs> That, that does sound uh, concerning. Yeah. Certainly. It's, it's like, thinking about that, it's like from a parent perspective, they were like, my kid is getting obsessed with the serial killer movie. <laughs> Dude, I'm actually... You were watching it every night. Was there something in it that, that, that made it you want to keep repeating it? I think I wanted to know why it scared me. And right. that's when I started thinking about filmmaking on a, on a deeper level. I want to know what it was. What, like, was it how it was put together? Just what exactly, what elements scare me? And, yeah, basically been finding out ever since. Um, yeah. So if you had to nail it down, do you feel like you know now what, what part of it scares you? Oh, absolutely. It's because uh, it's just so fucking excellently crafted. Like, um, all the way down from probably each individual element. It's just basic ingredients that when put together, it just turn out an uh, amazing product. It's, um, I know we'll, we'll probably cover it as we go on, but all the way from just the, the editing, the, the length of the shots, the music, so on, so on. We'll have to, I'll touch on it as we go on. I've, I've, I totally agree with that because I've, I've largely defined Halloween as like one of the most efficient horror films I've ever seen. It's because it all, it is all those pieces coming together and it's just, perfectly precise in how it's trying to scare or build tension in some ways and in, in the perfect delivery of those those uh punch lines of horror i would say where the moments come in and it is it's just so uh and it's interesting because you see how stripped down the budget and of the production is and how little you know carpenter and his company there had to work with but they just really stretch that to the very limits there and use it to their advantage in many ways yeah that kind of harkens back to what we were just saying about tim burton because i feel that um with the limited resources they really had to use their creativity to get around that budget whereas you know nowadays you have endless resources you can put anything on the screen that you want and there's no there's not as much restraint as there used to be Right. I feel and like so, uh, Carpenter has a great economy of direction too, because he comes from more of the school closer to like the. Of course, it couldn't exist with that like Texas Chainsaw before it. Um, sort of the same way too. Pooper uh, took some of that documentary feeling. It feels like no fuss. Uh, he shows you what's there and uh, and what's not there, and that's terrifying. Well, I think one of the other important things to acknowledge is how much of a student of the. The old masters, you would say, Carpenter was of, you know, like the likes of Hitchcock and Howard Hawks and whatnot, and especially in this case where Halloween is effectively the the greatest homage to Psycho ever made. Oh, absolutely, and it was almost by accident in a way too, because when uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, who 
course, it's Janet Lee from Psycho's Daughter. When she was uh, initially being casted, they didn't know. And uh, they were looking at another no, they actress. Didn't know that. Yeah, they were looking at another actress. And once they kind of found out that link, it was a. Uh, they realized they could use that for publicity. Went from there. It's insane because once they maybe once they found that out, um, everything from like the screeching like five four uh, music like with the time signatures, it sounds like just the you know like the psycho music sting just repeated mm-hmm. in a faster loop. It's everything well, feels birthed from that. Well, it's so interesting because it even comes down to small details like, you know, Donald Pleasant's character's name is Sam Loomis, which is a character taken directly from Psycho. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's the uh, um, boyfriend of Janet Lee's character that she's running away to California for. Um, there was a Hitchcock movie or with a Thomas Doyle in it, too. And I can't, <laughs> I can't remember what it is. Mm, I'm not sure. We'd have to get Graham on for that one because he's, of course, our resident Hitchcock expert. He would know, but... <laughs> Hmm. Uh, so, but, I feel like it's just so effective, uh, especially. I mean, right away, r- right when you see the pumpkin in the beginning, I, I was grinning like a jack o' lantern. I felt so happy and within the season, just to be with it again. I got. I actually, I got a question for you guys about the pumpkin because I've always yeah. heard this this dumb rumor about it. People always tell me, or I've, I've read places that I think I know the eye wrong. and nose of the pump. Yeah, the eye and nose of the pumpkin make out the image of Michael Myers holding a knife. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought that's the stupidest sounding theory I've ever heard, but I gotta know if there's there's any kind of validity to it or if you guys have a take on it. I actually uh, just heard that recently, and I mean, I guess I can see it, but I just I don't I don't <laughs> believe it. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it seems like such a ridiculous thing, like a ridiculously detailed uh, thing. Like that's something Kubrick would would work to put in his movie, and even then, I doubt that from him, especially because of how crude it is. Like the only validity i get to this is because of the long push into it you know over the course of the title sequence and eventually it's just those two specific holes of the pumpkin you see along the other titles popping up i'm like maybe this is where people got it from and they're like yeah it sort of looks like that but i mean i don't think that was in any way intentional (laughs) i mean it also sort of looks like an insane clown posse logo but we're not going to go into it We're learning a lot about each other today, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 Calvin, I see where your interests lie. Um, <laughs> I, I really like the intro. Uh, what what I picked up on this time is uh, uh, all the women's dialogue is really smart, and it, it, they're very well connected to the story. Uh, something I found missing in most of the uh, horror before it, uh, I could feel a lot of it in Black Christmas, like preceding this, that uh, it's following kind of speech patterns of, what like a sorority or a high school babysitter would sound like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's uh, mostly thanks to Deborah Hill, too, who co-wrote the script with uh, Carpenter. He handled yeah, it. Yeah, I felt a lot more of Deborah Hill in it this time, finally, after, what, like 100 watches? Yeah, but it's just uh, the dialogue's not exactly, you know, the greatest thing in the world. There's a few clunkers here It doesn't need there. to be, though. It, <laughs> it feels... I would say if there's... It, it feels real. I was going to say, if, if there's one... If there's one issue I have with the film, it is a bit of that dialogue between the teenagers and some of the other characters acting, you know, like all the, the friends of Laurie and whatnot. Jamie Lee Curtis is, of course, fantastic in it, but, like, that's, like, the the one weakness I feel in the film. Like, mm, this part feels a little amateur. Like, that, but that's it. Yeah, yeah I see Nancy uh, Keys, who played Annie, catch a flat quite often for her acting. That would be fair, I think. 
It's it's not even like that bothersome to me. It just makes those scenes where we're just having dialogue between them a, a little less interesting to me as in rewatches of the film. I find. Yeah, but I actually I love Annie. Uh, I guess um, just because of what she means for Lori, she's sort of. Um, well, well, please yeah, go into it so like, you can convince me otherwise. Well, Annie, um, she's constantly sarcastic, and she's mean as hell. Always putting her down, but um, underneath, you know, she genuinely cares for her, and it just reminds me of a like a real friendship. Everybody's had like that that sort of friend that's uh, kind of have a negative role in your life, and then it can turn around and go positive. I, I call him Calvin. Calvin. <laughs> hey now. As I said, we're learning a lot today. But uh, but yeah, Annie's her. Her delivery is what does it sometimes. Sometimes uh, she she seems a little monotone, especially um, especially with the girl she babysits, uh, little Lindsay. Uh, I think one of the other guys. Like, do you have any other thoughts on the 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 boyfriend character that that she's with? Uh, I can't remember his hey, name. Paul. Off the top of my head. Is that is it whoever it is who gets stabbed in like nonsensically into the the. Uh, the door there. That's another weird thing, I guess, about the film. But that's one of the cool things about the movie is that, like, you you honestly don't care about the gravity-defying physics of the knife holding him into the door like that. Like, it's just not something that even occurs to you when you're watching the film. Oh, yeah, that that goes in... Well, we'll probably touch on the whole Bob death in a second, but Bob himself, um, yeah. he serves his role well. It's uh, Linda's boyfriend. You know, you find uh, that out if you actually watch movies, David. And... Uh, <laughs> but uh he's just there for short comedic relief saying. and then to just be there for the best right, right. jump scare ever <laughs> like i said all those other teenage characters they kind of just get lobbed together in my memory even though i watched this just like a couple days ago like they're they're the least interesting aspect of the film to me and they disappear quickly from from my mind but you know it's it's Lori who really stands out as this really strong and commanding character throughout the whole time and she just makes the film entirely what it is i think yeah they they all basically just build to her and um the the story that as we find out about her her vulnerability you know we mm. we we care for her you know soon pretty much soon she pops up and um it's the other characters how she kind of like earns to to have what they have you know she sits there and stares out the window while she's babysitting the kids and has to watch them across the street having fun and then she's just sitting there being the girl scout hanging out with a bunch of young kids so that's the, right. that's the main purpose that uh, i believe her friends serve besides being you know killing fodder right well they serve a good juxtaposition to her character and reinforce the the ideals of her there and mm -hmm. that's really what they serve if they're not well-rounded characters themselves they're well-rounded you know uh foils to her effectively they're they're well you know they they uh, represent that thing that she craves and if you didn't have them in the film it certainly would be missing a very important aspect yeah for for me there's there's two main characters in this movie and that's mm -hmm. that's Lori and that's michael and yes, each of them really. yeah uh, you thought i was gonna say loomis right that's, that's my feeling about it. about it yeah but loomis Lo loomis is kind of he's he's michael's hype man like the entire right. time he's, he's kind of like yeah, go ahead 
I was going to say, he's basically uh, almost like an exposition machine most of the movie. You need someone with uh, Donald Pleasance's caliber of acting to do that, because otherwise he does, he would feel just like he's spouting exposition all the time, but he does feel like a genuine character because Pleasance gives him so much of that personality. Uh, But that, that is largely his purpose there, is to explain all the things about Michael that we can't learn from Michael himself. Yeah, my favorite thing about that argument is other than producers, he's the one real person who appears in the most Halloweens, obviously. Oh, uh, yeah. Because Michael changes actors constantly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but yeah, so, what do you think of what do you think of Pleasance here? I really love him. Oh, yeah, he's he's he's, he's awesome. He's, uh, that was their one, um, the filmmakers or the productions try for, to get a high name in there. They, they at first wanted Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Hmm. And, oh, that would have been a really interesting throwback. Yeah. The, um, I know that Cushing's agent said, um, you know, he was basically above it, and Lee he, very much regretted turning down the role. I, I, I think that's interesting that Cushing's agent said that they, he was above it, because literally the year earlier, he took Star Wars when that was just like a perceived <laughs> nothing. So that's that's very funny to me. I guess that's one thing we should discuss. Is Star Wars was right before this, so we were entering a new phase for genre movies. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, new Hollywood is winding down. A, I think that does have a lot to to it explains a lot of why previous kind of horror big shots like you mentioned earlier, Texas Chainsaw and Black Christmas didn't quite break the mold like Halloween did. Yeah, I think we were ready for it. I think it came at the right time where. There was like a suburban dread, dread about not trusting your neighbor also. And there was like this fear in the suburbs of, you know, maybe the killer lives next door. We just found out that serial killers are a thing in America. Of course, they had always been, but uh, we had really, you know, the news kind of sensationalizes and put a, puts a face on these fears that have always been abundant in culture. So it came like right at the right time, right moment, right people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I feel that it's like... um. What? On the surface, it's a really simple movie, you know. Hmm. But underneath, it um, is, there's, certainly. there's there's complexities like where it touches upon that uh, suburban horror, as you mentioned, and also um, I guess part of the, of its conception was how um, a lot of towns, especially small towns, always have these haunted house stories. Right. Yeah, and uh, that's what the Myers house represents for Haddonfield, and that's um. It, it repeatedly shows up throughout the film, even the the very last shot, just to remind us and you know sends us into that place. Oh, what what's going on in my town? You know. I think it works out when you're in a small town. I I lived in Circleville, Ohio, part of my time growing up. So we had the yearly pumpkin festival, of course, and we did corn mazes, all of that. Uh, I think it works when you live in a harvest town that uh, that your crops would lead into a season because. Seasons are so important when you're in those towns. Everything in the economy is based on them, so it makes a lot of sense that horror would be such a huge event. Well, especially you mentioned there with Ohio, because that's Ohio's practically connected to Illinois there, which is where you know Halloween takes place. So that kind of yeah. more Midwestern feeling is certainly more, uh, you know, you, you connect with that a lot more. I imagine. I mean, it could feel like any little town. I bet it feels like so, Kentucky, oh, yeah. or it, I, it's what, shot in California, right? It looks like it California. is. <laughs> you can you can see a couple of palm trees in the background of some shots, but otherwise they do a really good job of hiding it. Yeah. Oh well, they let, they let a few slip in, I guess. 
Oh, it's it's very hard to tell. You got to look for them. Yeah. Really. Um, you know, you'd really have to be like, breaking down the scene. I think. I made a drinking game of it this last time. I took a shot whenever I saw a palm tree. There's a there's actually a few other gaps I in the movie. Uh, if I don't know if y'all have ever noticed them, as I tried to ruin the movie for you. Um, <laughs> whenever um, Nurse Marion's getting attacked in the car, and of course this is a lot easier to spot now that we got high definition and all that. But uh, you know Michael's on top of it coming after, and uh, mm. and he. His hand slowly comes down and breaks the glass. Yeah, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, in the beginning. Yeah, um, there's a wrench in his hand, actually, and oh. huh. it's like just straight in the frame now. And I actually didn't notice it until uh, like a viewing last year. Yeah, I, I didn't know about this wrench at all. Yeah, I haven't noticed it before. And then another one that. Uh, Actually, my mother told to me, which really surprised me. Um, the very last shots of the movie, um, I figure, were just kind of put in, a, like it, it wasn't planned. It wasn't part of the script. The whole let's show everywhere he's been, everywhere he could be, while he, the breathing escalates. And uh, I, my theory is that they were all taken from other scenes in the movie, just uh, like right before uh, that scene would start or after. So like. An example being where it goes to the Wallace house outside of it. That was taken from the, the scene where Michael carries Annie's body in and Tommy sees him through the window. Because you can see Michael holding Annie pop up in the last split second. Oh, that's interesting. So like they just took like the beginning part of that clip you mean that probably was on the cutting room floor otherwise, and they snuck that on at the end of the film there. And they caught just that, that hair of him in the end coming into that scene. Yeah, and then uh, the the one with um, the house they're in, I guess, the, the Doyle house, um, where they show the living room, the knife's down there from where Lori threw it after his initial attack in the house. So just kind of shows me how, you know, every single part of creating a film is just as important as the next, you know. From screenwriting to filming to right. post production, that's it all makes the movie. Well, it's interesting how they're able, like we said, that economical filmmaking. There, they're able to use those aspects to reinforce a great ending like that. You know, uh, and kind of something that's thought up in the editing room. I think sometimes we forget uh, that some crucial moments are made in the edit there, and they're not necessarily on the script level or shot all the way through every aspect of the production something new comes along and can change uh, the final product yeah i think most great movies become elevated from just good movies in the edits um, i think that's very clear here because it's an icon it has a lot of economy in the edit too it feels right um, and it it feels tense uh, everything is terse um, it shows you just what it needs to uh, our friend hamid was saying it does such a great job more than any other movie of a uh, carrying a feeling out and making you stick with it when you're uncomfortable yeah there's there's lots of those prolonged shots and that's where a lot of the horror really comes from is just these suspended sequences i love some of my favorite moments of the film are just in early on when we see michael uh just and you know he's popping out of the bush or whatever or he's standing in the the clothesline area and those those really eerie moments where it just fixates him on this moment here and you lock eyes for an uncomfortable amount of time yeah, which, as you were mentioning, is basically a byproduct of the budget itself, where, um, you know, having these longer takes means less setups. 
And mm. they, they, they only, I think it took three weeks to film this. Something like that. It's wow, well, incredible. <laughs> the film does open with a famous long one-take shot, you know, uh, which was an early innovative use of the Steadicam. Oh, the Steadicam uh, being... We got to talk about the Steadicam. Like that, uh, I believe oh, okay. that, that perspective, which audiences weren't that used to, you know, that's what added to that terror. It's, it's like a, something new that they hadn't seen before, which now we're just, we've seen it a million times, you know. Every Halloween clone right. has those type of shots. That, that, that first-person perspective. I think it's kind of interesting because we, we have seen it in other instances. Of course, classic examples where we see first-person. And there's even, like, as recent as, you know, like, you had Black Christmas kind of start out in that similar manner mm-hmm. with that opening one take. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of similar homage here in Halloween to that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's still a, a, a wonderful way of doing that, and I think Halloween is really the best execution of that in that long take going up and demonstrating the whole you know sequence there with him making you know uh, Michael doing his first murder. I think it's great that it puts you where you don't especially want to be. Uh, you shouldn't want to be in his shoes, um, and in some way it makes you root for him at, at some turns. You don't always want Michael to lose. No, no, because it's so damn good, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> it would it would ruin the ruin the movie for him just to be you know found out right away. So uh, it's kind of better if he kills a few teenagers along the way. Um, I think my favorite thing about this movie is just how the autumnal spirit works into it. It's it was like the first perfect movie for a time of year that I really experienced. Um, I think it just works that um, I like the idea that people would be dressed up anyway. So it's not that creepy that an old guy would be out in a costume and a mask. I think that's really scary about it. I think that's the the big thing to talk about here is, I mean, yeah, let's just talk about the costume design for a second because I think that's one of the most inspired aspects of it. And again, another product of the absolute bare-bones budget here, you know, the famous William Shatner mask that they retooled into this ghostly face. It was $2. <laughs> $2. They paid $2 for me. And it's so iconic now. Um, we're paying more for replicas, of course, than they got the mask for. Did those replicas go as high as like a thousand bucks? Right. <laughs> for a $2 mask. You could imagine how much the original would sell for if it hadn't been lost. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's not lost, actually. Oh, I thought it was. Uh, from reading, I remember reading the, your, your pieces, all of your many. Uh, you know, retrospectives you did on it, you said it was lost after Halloween 2, I thought. Um, well, what happened was that um, the the guy that played Michael in the sequel, Dick Warlock, he took it home. And, oh. and he had it on display next to uh, Jason Mass that he, because he, he played Jason temporarily for a scene in a Friday the 13th movie. And he kept it there for years before he finally sold it to a private collector. And there was actually a couple pictures that came out Last year, the year before, showing the state of it and the poor thing. You know, it's a it's in bad shape. <laughs> the no, net, no. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a cheap mask. This isn't like a plastic that's gonna right <laughs> or latex. I, I, mean. I think I remember seeing seeing pictures of the original Shatner mask, like the kind it came from, and that thing looked like a piece of shit to begin with. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did that thing ever uh, get past you know the quality department? That's. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, they, they had to choose between that and I think a, a Spock mask and a clown mask, which would, I guess, mirror the initial scene where little Michael wore a clown mask. And 
it's it's interesting they didn't go with that direction because that seems like the obvious choice when you're first setting yeah. out to make the film. But you know, in retrospect, here and looking back, it's like how could you pick anything different? Was it like four or five when we start getting clown stuff in it? Um, let's see. Which one's the one where the little girl becomes like a clown at the end? Oh, four. That's that's four. Four. Yeah, yeah, because. Uh, that movie's so fucking stupid. All right, so like, <laughs> <laughs> we won't, we won't uh, talk too much about the sequels here. Yeah. There's still so much more to talk about with the original. Yeah, I think it's just like part and parcel that the the way that it developed would a, you know, they would get some of these ideas later on, like a with the mess and like Halloween three, and then you have know, four going back to some of the clown roots, even though it's really fucking dumb. <laughs> but yeah. Mike, so Michael Myers. Let me tell you about Michael Myers. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So that's what we're here for, right? Yeah. So that dude, um, he. What makes him so effective is just the mystery, and the other half is the technical aspects of the film. They are what bring him to life, like a, because he's not credited as Michael Myers in the script. It's the shape, right? And. Mm-hmm. I always appreciated that. I thought the shape was much scarier than making him very human. Yeah, absolutely. And it's because of how he's filmed in this movie. He's, it's it's the Jaws effect where we see more of the monster as the movie goes on. Mm. And Carpenter's really and in Cundy, I gotta mention Dean Cundy. They're really smart in how they keep him obscured, like behind bushes, like you said, right. or. Yeah, we get the bushes and the clothesline and a lot of good obscuring shots. Yeah, even the More way... like in the, shadows. Yeah, the shadows and the way they use, like, even the anamorphic widescreen because mm-hmm. uh, the way it has that uh, that out-of-focus area, the uh, I guess they call it the bokeh, um, like, a lot of times it'll keep him obscured in there. So even, like, when you would finally be able to see details of the mask, it's, it's blurred just because it's framed that way. Right. Yeah. It was a very wide-looking movie, too, especially for at that time. Oh, yeah. That, that's what Carpenter um, was really focused on. Even though they had the low budget, he wanted to have that cinemascope ratio. And it, it makes the movie look much more expensive than it is. Like, that, that, that movie's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. And even then, like, um, let's see. Yeah, there's the scene uh, where, where Annie finally dies, and... They were really smart on one level, just from where um, Michael's already in the car, and she gets in, and we see the uh, where he's been breathing, the steam build up on the windows. So that, along with the the door being unlocked, lets us know that he's there. But what also happens when the camera turns away and we see from inside, um, we can't make him out. He's still obscured. It's just it's brilliant. <laughs> It's just a great use of, uh, you know, the cinematography throughout as well. And again, like we said, with the obscuring of him. And there's lots of also great instances where we, uh, like you said, in comparison to Jaws, where we get time with Michael without directly seeing him by, like, viewing from his perspective. Like when he's driving around in the cop car uh, or when he's, like, staring at Laurie from the bush where he kind of steps out. We're just shooting over his shoulder and we see those that perspective of him without actually getting a look at Michael himself. Uh, and it's also part of it is the the mask does so much to obscure him just because of those kind of soulless black eyes that you get. Yeah. So that's that's so part of it here. The whole dichotomy of Michael that he is at 
once inhuman and entirely, you know, human, and that's really the the scariest aspect of him. I find is that duality. Yeah, and that's what's brilliant about the ending because um, it's like the film's asking a question the entire time. We have um, Loomis and Tommy basically just being his hype man as walking evil mm-hmm. incarnate, and you know we we see him, which okay, that's a dude. That's just a guy. He's in a mask and. Um, there's nothing you know special about that in terms of just he's just going around trying to stab people. We can take him out, you know. And gradually throughout the film, we just see these displays of something that it just isn't normal, like Bob's death. Whenever he he lifts him up, one-handed, and uses that knife to pin him to the wall, you know, like my brain doesn't normally think like yeah that's absurd that a knife holds him up just because of that possibility that there's just something extra going on there well yeah and that's the thing is that the film really rides this line of inhuman capabilities while also it's it's shot and presented in a very frank and grounded manner to a point where like we said earlier you can really actually buy into this idea that a knife can suspend bob against the wall like that yeah when in all actuality there's no way that could be possible, even with superhuman strength. Yeah, but you buy into it there's because just, of how how the film presents it. There's just cleverness and fun behind the kills. Like, I just like the small moments, like where all the closets are opening up and revealing just the amount of carnage that's already happened in the house. Yeah, like um, whenever Annie's in the laundry room and that door shuts. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's no explanation for that. It's <laughs> it's so good at using a house to build suspense against you too. Yeah, but then uh, they also they're smart enough to leave that element in that you would overthink to say, well, maybe the wind caught a draft some weird way and that door slammed, and, mm-hmm. you know? and that's just how it goes with Michael the entire time, and and even as uh, the climax happens and he, Lori continually fights back at him with you know, she stabs him in the eye, she stabs him in the neck, and finally in the chest, and he keeps coming on, and he takes a. Uh, I believe six shots and falls off and um you know that's typically that'd be the end right but no he's he's still out there <laughs> just making you think well, well maybe he isn't human and that's and that's the incredible thing is that the film is able to take these extremely supernatural elements and sell them as an actual reality here i find that generally the films we perceive as the the, the scariest films of all time the best horror movies the you know exorcist shining or you know whichever here they're the ones that are presented in this manner that you are able to buy into and believe despite their inherent uh unbelievability you know especially in the case of something like the exorcist which i think we've briefly discussed before where it's it's shot like a documentary effectively to to sell this idea of reality and i and i get that same feeling with halloween here is that it's presented in a manner that you are supposed to believe that this is in fact capable of happening yeah exactly and even down to his um fixation on Lori in the first place you know it's just um just just the random element of it all right well, and that's that's such the interesting thing is that he is he does seem to be uh, not not specific in who he chooses to kill here. He he is very unthinking or unmotivated, I should say, in in his victims here, which is interesting in how the sequels just 
totally botched that. <laughs> right. I really like that aspect of him that he doesn't need a motivation because that means really anyone's up for the you know anyone's up for killing now. Yeah, it's all. Well, that's what makes it scary. Yeah. Yeah. If he's if, if he's targeting specific people, then the the horror no longer affects you. You can't be killed by Michael Myers because, you know, you can't do anything to make him want to kill you. Right. But if he if he is an unthinking, unfeeling, killing machine, then you are absolutely you know on his radar and can absolutely be a victim of his. And that's you know what really makes him terrifying. This this plausibility of evil in men. Yeah, that's the worst aspect of the sequels. It was just tied to family, I believe. And yeah. Uh, it just it just lost. Even just from the action. second one on. Yeah. It's it's Carpenter's fault. <laughs> that, <Right>. that, that, <laughs> uh, I mean he really shit the bed with the second script. It, I feel like the downfall is all on him too. Yeah, and, and he yeah, knows it. The success and the downfall. He says the only thing that got him through that script was a six pack of bud every night. That's it. Right. And he just forced it out. And actually he, he saw a Empire Strikes Back, and that's where that came from. He 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 got desperate, and just wanted to find something to shock the audience. And, Makes sense. And it just loses that's, all. It's sad that it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's sad that it went that way. But I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with Calvin here, and I'm gonna blame audiences for not being open to Halloween three as far as the series downward trajectory because it really could have uh-huh. lifted up after there. I mean, I don't think you're disagreeing with me. I've always held Halloween three very high, anyway. But no, I, I just agree disagreeing with, with just disagreeing disagreeing with the notion that it's Carpenter's fault that the series ended up the way it was because you know his involvement there and making that happen was really, I think, a phenomenal turn. And it's just shame on the audiences for rejecting it so wholeheartedly. In some cases, even still to today, but it is largely getting its justice now. Yeah, it's it's coming around and. Uh... I'll tell you what's interesting about that is Carpenter was originally set to help out on Halloween 4 because Halloween 3 is famously the last of his involvement in the series until um, the Halloween Halloween um, Cubed that came out last year. And uh, <laughs> But he uh, he had a writer and he was going to... He came up with a story and they produced it and it just got rejected. And essentially he was still kind of doing his whole anthology thing in a way like a in the sense that he took a story that was completely unrelated to halloween and just pretty much put a halloween paint on it like it's it's the most it's more of like a nightmare on elm street film and the the producers didn't want it so they uh they they bought the rights from them and thing is everybody always talks about how halloween 3 was so badly received but halloween 4 didn't do that well either and we still got michael mile Michael Myers shoved down her fucking throat for the next, you know, what, 12, eight more movies or something. I feel I, like I it was coming it... off, too. There just wasn't a brand enthusiasm at the moment. Uh, the whole thing was tied to Michael in some sense. And yeah. Taking him and the brand out. It's, it's weird. I, I think it just goes to show uh, how solid this original is here, that no matter how many awful and uninspired sequels we got um you know all the way up through now even though this last film did seem like a a brighter light and the ones looking forward seem like they have some promise um you know that the the original and the original michael myers still holds all of his terror and fear and you know absolute uh the, the film's wonder as far as you know a technical uh achievement just in its economy like we said and you know the performances of all the characters especially michael you know in his uh voiceless role here he still holds all the menace and 
you know, all that that we think of the character uh, and then we think fondly of the character with instead of all the shitty interpretations from all the sequels. Yeah, just that that presence. It's like I have this weird attachment to the series as a whole, even though um, I believe I only look on like three of them fondly. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I think it's just because they vaguely resemble a movie that I absolutely love. I see it too. Yeah, I could get it. You you guys both have a fondness for the series in whole. I know I don't share the same appreciation of mediocrity, but it's okay. <laughs> but listen, hey, we have a we have a date sometime soon where I'm I'm gonna save you, David, on this uh, most recent Halloween. It's, it's a goal in my life. I'm gonna get you to see my I really hope so. Yep. Well, I'm running out of time here. I think I think next year we should come back to uh, Halloween Kills, all three of us. Though. Yeah. That sounds uh, like an interesting prospect. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what the rest of you know, the series will go with, even if I was not as enthusiastic on this most recent one as everyone else was. Uh, but I'm sure I liked it better than I would other sequels that happened already. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I know, I know Jesse's most passionate about it. You want to give us any closing statement? or oh, but how Maybe inspire someone who hasn't seen it for a while to come back to it. Uh, with the original? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, that movie is timeless, you know. It a lot of people find it um that because the kills aren't as complex or gory, you know that it, mm. it that they believe that audiences become desensitized to it. And there was this uh, study a, a few years back where I can't remember who did it, but basically they got a bunch of these young kids in college to to watch the movie and to give their thoughts on it. And Oh, interesting. Yeah, the entire time, um, like the ones that hated it, were just posting on Twitter the entire the entire duration of the movie, talking about how lame it was and how it wasn't scary. Oh, mm. I bet he just keeps showing up and disappearing and all that. And they don't get it. They were watching it as if they were going in to a slasher movie, you know? Because we watch right. 80 slasher movies. We just want to watch it for the the cheesy aspects, the the kills, and just follow the tropes but that's not what this is this movie it it's every element together and you have to just sit there and take it in and if you do that's that's how it kind of gets in your mind those those uh, those dark corners around you and stuff start standing out a bit more As a final send-off for me as well, I'm, I'm a little disappointed that we did not get a chance to highlight the fantastic score from John Carpenter and Alan Hayworth here. But maybe, uh, Calvin, you can help us out by uh, playing us out with that uh, amazing Halloween theme. So at the very least, we get a little taste of that here. I feel like it's... I feel like one part of it, it's been covered in every piece on Halloween before, you know. Uh, we could well, go I, over it for a second. Uh, if And I could lead us out with it. Yeah, I was I gonna say. Can. I think the score. Yeah, go ahead. I I, I couldn't find the uh, charger to my cheap Casio keyboard, but I was gonna start playing it. And, and <laughs> <laughs> but oh well. Sweet. Well, thank you both for coming on, and uh, we look forward to maybe more Halloween cast in the future. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. I mean, is David gonna be there next time? I'm not, I'm not sure. Oh, right. uh, we'll see if I watch movies still at that point. Yeah. Well, there's still hope for you yet, David. Mm-hmm.